Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Darren Ingram at King's Raven Winery in Oregon City. It's uh, July 7th, 2020. Darren, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, first question and most important question is why wine? Well, our family and my generation, I'm fifth generation Lama Valley, Oregon pioneer. My great-great-grandfather uh, retired from the Union Army out of Pennsylvania as a quartermaster and headed west with uh, many of the pioneers that came out in the post-Civil War era. They, uh, my great-grandfather was the first one born here in 1882 out in Butteville. So the Shampooey area, uh, Willamette Valley, uh, right next to the river. So my grandfather and his dad and my dad all grew up in this area and, and uh, my grandfather bought this land in 41 um, and they subsistence farmed. He worked at the mill, but that means that they grew all their own food. They had the cow for the milk and beef cow for the meat and the pigs and, and all of that. But um, uh, it became apparent in my experience growing up here in the 70s and 80s that uh, something was happening uh, in Oregon with wine. And as I ventured into post uh, high school education, I was uh, lucky enough to cross paths with Dale Hatfield, who at the time was, and I'm not sure if he still is, the uh, head of the business department at Clackamas Community College here in Oregon City. And uh, the story goes, I was working at the Ford dealership in Canby um, and had worked out a relationship with the owner to uh, pay for my education in order to ramp up business education as well as learning a second language, being Spanish. Uh, but uh, I really liked Dale and his classes. Uh, so in the fall, I signed up for three of his classes and he was late or missing all the classes and I had already had a bad experience with Clackamas Community College and uh, with a different instructor so I cornered him one day and said hey you want us to show up and you know do our work I expect you to be there too and he's like well I have this little vineyard out in Sherwood and it's harvest time and light bulb uh, it kind of you know all seemed to solidify there was a piece of music that I think helped influence me but mainly you know it was starting to show up in all the papers in the late 80s and 90s for sure that Oregon wine was something to uh, compare with mm -hmm. the rest of the world's products. So uh, I approached my parents with uh, the idea that uh, we maybe should dip our toe in the growing grapes market and that's where we started. So you mentioned a little bit about some of the things you had done before wine. Tell us, tell us a little bit about the kind of the pre-wine pre uh, career uh, path you were on. Well, we bootstrapped this whole thing, and that's part of how, you know, the pioneers did it, as well as we've grown up learning the ways of, you know, reduce, reuse, and recycle is not a new concept. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, so 
Some of the things I was doing was, um, was I worked at the Ford dealership in Canby and, and um, I was interested in video production uh, um, as a child and then uh, my buddies and I, we all raced motorcycles so we made, made motorcycle movies. Well, I had an opportunity to take a job as a video editor and I left uh, the Ford dealership to take this job. It lasted nine months. We call it Valentine's Day Massacre because they laid us off literally on Valentine's Day. Um, but it was a good experience uh, and uh, led to a freelance career of uh, video production around the world covering high-end luxury sports, um, Ferraris, um, a lot of sailing for Rolex. Um, and then I ended up specializing in aerial photography. So. <laughs> Hanging out of helicopters and all that kind of stuff. Um, the introduction of drones and working with drones. It's a sad day, you know, don't get to fly anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but you can get more gigs. Uh, and so did that in parallel in tandem while we uh, started planting. Most operations will go get, you know, a big chunk of money and, you know, plant everything and build your structures and everything. But in the, in the bootstrap um, strategy, you pay as you go. So um, it's in many ways been a good strategy for us because just like planting a garden, you want to start different seeds at different times so that you have crops coming in all the time. If you plant your whole entire property with, with vineyard at once in one season, they will all age at the same time and that could be problematic. We think of vines you know, lasting hundreds of years, but in reality, they don't remain produceful you know, for that period of time. Mm -hmm. So you have to plan for some turnover and some change, besides the change in the marketplace. You know, uh, I've, in my 20 years now in the wine industry here in Oregon, have watched it go from free tastings and free festivals to paying for a taste and expensive festivals. Um, farmers markets cropped up. Um, Rosé, after some cold vintages in, in the mid-2000s, uh, really exploded and have set some preferences, I feel like, uh, in the marketplace. Um, but more than anything, it's been interesting to see how the traditional um, labeling and branding has changed. And the, you know, the customer base also is open to what's new. I always, I always, I uh, share with, with my uh, private tastings and wine tours, you know, it's so interesting to me that the creatures of habit that we are, that whenever we go shopping, it isn't, you know, I'll have the same thing I always had. It's like, what's new? Mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If we were such creatures of habit, you know, that we resist change, why do we keep asking what's new? And so you need to keep that in the back of your mind, um, I think, in, in any business but for wine it's such a long-term cycle it takes three to five years maybe even more just to get a, a, a quality crop so we've taken a different approach to uh, growing grapes mm -hmm. and making wine so when you uh, when you uh, approach your family with that idea tell me about their reaction and then tell me about like the first steps towards starting this <laughs> sure well, as most teenagers get labeled, um, I was also labeled lazy. Uh, <laughs> my own father, you know, swore that he would never come back to the farm either, and here he is, um, sitting up on top of it all. Um, 
but I had a similar experience, you know, in, in your, and I'm thankful that my parents and my grandparents all did afford me that time to, uh, I guess, decide if this uh, path was right for me because, you know, you have to be committed to be a farmer. Uh, there are many operations that are just wineries or wineries and vineyards or just vineyards and we are an estate winery so that means I grow all of my own grapes um, and mother nature besides the marketplace will beat you down relentlessly and you just have to dust yourself off and say okay I'll try again next year you know on the accounting side they, they have a little bit of a harder time with that but uh, <laughs> you know I always say, I just say don't worry we'll make more <laughs> and True to form, it's hard to believe here we are in July already, another vintage is around the corner. Uh, in uh, 45, six to 60 days, there's gonna be uh, a lot of change and harvest will begin. <laughs> so, um, my parents, I think, received it well in, in, in responding that, um, okay, well, uh, we're not gonna go you know, full tilt, Here's an acre. Mm -hmm. We'll see if you're actually committed to this. Mm -hmm. uh, you're only 27. <laughs> and so um, we started with an acre and got um, educated up enough to plant some grapes. I did not go to school to grow grapes or make wine. Uh, neither did my father uh, or his father. So we actually started planting grapes in 1999. Uh, but at that time, and you can still get it, uh, it's still in print, the, the uh, manual for Oregon grape growing was the Oregon Grape Growers Guide. And that was kind of our Bible for, for uh, you know, jumping into this, this exciting lake of wine. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so my dad really uh, got excited, I think. He really jumped in and it wasn't just here you do this, it was, I have a lot of experience growing all kinds of things that let me, let's do this together. And we did. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. How does it differ? What, what, what was different about grapes? What did you have to learn from the Grape Gore's Guide or just from experience that was different about grapes than other things you had grown? Well, my whole experience actually uh, was black Angus and making hay. So uh, you got to feed the animals twice a day. Uh, keep the waters from freezing up in the winter. It's, you know, uh, a, a lot of day in and day out, can't get away. You're surrounding your entire property and your house with barbed wire electric fence. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, so that, that's a different experience, but uh, it has its own rhythm and um, is a great way to manage property, honestly, um, provide you know, provided for the family and an extended family with the beef that we are producing. And Oregon is, uh, I mean, it's meant for growing grass. <laughs> the organic dairy across the street from us has switched from uh, raising corn and clover and alfalfa to 100% grass. Uh, and, you know, if you talk to a lot of the old guys, it's like, why beat your head against a wall growing these things that don't grow here? grass you know is the way to go so the biggest difference really is in working with European varietals versus the hybrid and heirloom grapes here in the Willamette Valley uh, obviously the the 
what we consider the most recent pioneers um, of the Oregon wine industry that came up in the 60s to, you know, plant uh, Pinot Noir. Um, Prove that it can be done, but it's still not a natural process. Mm -hmm. It can be an organic process where um, you fight the, uh, fun the fungus which attacks the grapes um, and the grape leaves and the grape bunches. Um, but uh, that's where we've chosen a little bit different strategy in um, grape selection and working with some heirloom varieties, some hybrids that uh, dive deep into that story of phloxera and, again, post-Civil War era. So tell me about that. Tell me about deciding once you, once you, you had an acre, you, 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 you proved that it could be done, you proved that it was something you're interested in. Tell me about the expansion and the choice of what you wanted to plant and where you wanted to plant it. Sure. Uh, well, my mom was working at Westland High School, um, and uh, one of her co-workers was a Swedish gal. And so, as moms do, oh, my son is, you know, interested in growing grapes, and we're thinking about getting into the wine industry. And she relates that she has a friend and colleague, a Swede, um, who lives out in uh, Beaver Creek, so about five miles from here. And that uh, he had a little, um, a grape co-op, so meaning that kind of old world uh, or European um, culture, people from the community come and help tend the vineyard, pick the grapes, make the wine, and everybody gets a cut. Well, um, she uh, told us about him and we had uh, already begun planting the Pinot Noir and, and ha had hired a consultant to say, hey, you know, this is what we have, what should we do? And he's basically, you know, like, well, how long do you want to talk? It's seventy-five dollars an hour. So, a little bit for our time with him, but um, uh, it really was uh, fortuitous to uh, end up meeting uh, Lars. And uh, so his name is Lars Nordstrom. And uh, interesting story. By day, wrote children's uh, books, uh, and by uh, the rest of his time was trying to uh, develop this wholly organic vineyard. And in that paradigm, you need to work with grapes that are not only cold hardy for our climate zone, but ones that are resistant to the funguses that we fight, powdery mildew and botrytis. So he had already done 20 to 30 years of working with different cultivars and hybrids and, and heirloom hybrids that uh, uh, it gave him a lot of insight into which ones were great, great ones to choose. So we were able to select um, different wines that he had, he had made, and uh, from my limited education in tasting wine with girlfriends and at parties and dinners, <laughs> I, I said, I think we could sell this. <laughs> and so we chose many of those um, heirloom varieties that he was working with, and so today, we grow, let's see, one, two, three, four, four different um, hybrid grape varieties. And one of them, in fact, um, I, I'm pretty sure it's the 2019 festival, the festival that um, Astoria Seafood, Seafood and Wine Festival, our Marshall Foch won Best in Show. And that really um, is an incredible story. I, we talked we talk a little bit about how Branding has changed in the wine industry, but um, you know, so you can have 
um, wines that are named um, Fat Bastard and, and all this kind of stuff. You know, it's brand names instead of grape names mm -hmm. and that kind mm -hmm. of thing. And, and these heirloom varieties had often been mm -hmm. varietals. Um, and so for a hybrid to win a major West Coast wine festival, I, just, I mean, I really felt blessed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Excellent. Uh, so you talked about Marichal Foch. Tell me what else uh, the other kind of strange, strange hybrid varieties are growing here that are a little unique. Sure. Uh, probably at the top of the list, uh, my personal favorite is a very mysterious grape called Leon Milo or Mio. L-E-O-N, two words, M-I-L-L-O-T. Um, many of these hybrids were an heirloom uh, versions of the hybrids. They're still creating hybrids today. Hmm. Um, but uh, many of them were created um, after a phylloxera outbreak in Europe in the uh, post-Civil War era and before the turn of the century, where for 15, 20 years they really struggled with how to identify and deal with this bug and, and, and problem. And, and it ended up being two different camps. In the north, they worked on the traditional old world way of we call it GMO today, but it's still uh, part of evolution, is selecting the best of different breeds. So in this case, it was North American, European varieties that make great wine, but weren't resistant. Mm -hmm. And so Leon Milo uh, is, is my favorite, a very uh, fantastic, velvety, smooth, um, berry-licious, uh, uh, medium body red. And I'll point out too at this point that um, that's one of the things that have changed in the valley too. You know, we're definitely known for Pinot Noir and Chardonnay um, here in the Willamette Valley and Pinot Gris, but uh, many of the wineries now carry big and medium body reds and those don't grow here. Um, it, it's a cold climate and a wet climate where you need a drier or warmer climate for those grapes, but these hybrids allow you to produce bigger reds right here in the valley. So um, next up we have another red, um, another interesting story, a, uh, a uh, um, nurseryman called Siebel created over 10,000 crosses from four parents supposedly and I, I think my, my recollection is correct there but um, out of those 10,000 tests, you know, imagine this in the late 1800s, um, not only creating a new cultivar, planting it, growing it, making wine from it, and then grading the wine from it 10,000 times. His, um, his all-time favorite from all of those 10,000s was a grape called Chalois. C-H-E-L-O-I-S. And so we grow Chalois here as well. Um, and uh, it, probably my second favorite, but uh, Marshall Foch is, is quite um, well known in the valley. It has different connotations uh, in different regions of the country because um, uh, kind of like the movie French Kiss where uh, grapevines were being smuggled from one region to another. And the opposite actually happened uh, in the Prohibition era. You at the U.S. says uh, no more alcohol production, but we know everybody, you know, is it, from European descent, you know, it's part of daily life. So each family is allowed to make up to two barrels per wine for their own family consumption. Mm -hmm. And 
And so uh, the seed catalogs and nursery catalogs exploded with sending grape cuttings all over the all over the country. So there was a guy smuggling <laughs> grapevines out of uh, uh, France and Germany and Italy and taking them to New York and then selling them across the country. And so for quite some time, and I think this is where you know some of that you know oh those are those are lesser wines. Um, they weren't um, either grown well or uh, uh, they take a different strategy to make into mm -hmm. a, a high-end wine, but um, they did become so popular in uh, France that eventually in the late 70s they were outlawed. And it's referred to as the wine lake. <laughs> and a new renaissance was created with the old world varieties because these heirloom uh, hybrids made it so easy to grow good wine. So it's interesting that in different regions like the, of the world post-prohibition here in the U.S., you know, things had different uh, um, experiences for people, but Marshall Foch definitely has a big following here in the Willamette Valley, and I would venture the whole Pacific Northwest. Mm -hmm. It's fairly widely known, so um, once people, you know, get over that of, oh, I've never heard of this grape, oh, well, there's thousands of grapes that you should try. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the three reds that we grow. They are all um, a, a wonderful color. They have a red pulp and red juice uh, and uh, take about half of the uh, labor and uh, effort in the vineyard. You can see actually behind us here, we grow most of them in a single high wire. So there's zero hedging. Uh, pruning's uh, quite a bit easier as well. And the picking is right in front of your face. It's not set up for machine picking, but uh, the, uh, we definitely uh, still on the winemaking side like the stems and the other parts that you know give some character to the wine. So, um, I was going to say at the end of that, uh, the, so those are the three reds that we grow, but we do one white hybrid also. It's actually a German hybrid called Phoenix. And as far as we know, we're one of only two wineries in the whole U.S. that are working with it commercially. Um, but it's a very interest, interesting, interesting grape as well. So tell me about learning those grapes and learning the, 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 how they're different from perhaps what we're more familiar with here. And then about the marketing part and selling. You mentioned that people have to kind of get over the fact they've never heard of it or, 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 or maybe can't pronounce it. So tell me about educating consumers about those kind of grapes. In the early years, uh, edu you know, wine education was part of what you had to do even for the top 10 European varietals. Uh, new people at festivals or farmers markets, you know, may have experienced wine only in a special occasion kind of setting. And uh, that renaissance of wine and alcohol being a part of daily life has definitely blossomed in the last 10 years here in the Pacific Northwest and I would say maybe even worldwide. Uh, so that's, you know, a, a, a big change on how people mm -hmm. approach it. Um, and then again, you know, so then people get hooked and are, well, what's new? What else can I try? Mm -hmm. And so the education has become a little bit easier, but it is fun. 
to uh, share a new story that nobody's ever heard, even though these stories are somewhat, uh, you know, related to distant, you know, uh, events over a hundred years ago. Um, and so, yeah, it's been an interesting path learning how to uh, work with the grapes. But I, again, I had a great resource in Lars Nordstrom, who had already done 20 or 30 years. Um, the Grape Growers Guide also, you know, talks about all the different trellis systems. But at the end of the day, um, from my other uh, pursuits, I in design and video production, you always learn that less is more. Uh, and farming is the same way too. So I, while we don't belong to um, live, I totally buy into you know the low input viticulture. Uh, it just, it makes economic sense, but also your quality is likely to go up because you're not spending so much time beating your head against the wall trying to make the square peg go in the round hole. So I pleasantly and surprisingly, they're super easy to grow. <laughs> um, and uh, so that's been, been great. Um, there is no silver, silver bullet though. <laughs> and uh, it, in my experience, you know, relationships and watching everybody chasing those silver bullets and free money and, and this and that, we spend usually 10 times the amount of the effort in chasing those some you know what we perceive to be some type of relief to our effort and instead of just sitting down and doing the work that it takes in a less is more you know low input kind of, of strategy um, and it really kind of is that you know tortoise and hare story mm -hmm. it slow and steady mm -hmm. wins the battle not necessarily fast and, and hard so mm -hmm. um in that there's no silver bullets, the phoenix, you know, um, they, you all, uh, with each grape, you learn how to work with it. So, for instance, the, the phoenix has a thin skin, and uh, which makes a very nice white, dry, peach kind of flavor profile in the wine. And uh, so that, that's really refreshing and nice. However, because of the thin skin, as soon as it gets to a certain level of bricks at ripeness, um, in late August or early September, the yellow jackets and wasps can break the skin and, and get into it, and they start devouring it. So uh, it depends on the, the pressure from you know those pests that each year about how ripe I can wait and what my threshold is uh, for uh, letting the bees attack it. but. In the case of, of the Phoenix, I don't really have to measure a, a whole lot of stuff because I know when the bees, and because I, I did it for many years, when the bees start eating it, it's hit 18. It's 17, 18 degrees bricks, and that's, you know, they won't, they won't eat it any less sweet. Of course, they'll eat it more sweet, but that's when they get started. And so, uh, little things like that, you know, you learn what are the leading indicators mm -hmm. um, besides you know all of the rest of your senses it, it's it is neat to have a, a um, foundation in what i would call um, uh, editing by numbers uh, from the production world it was um, you can either you know feel the flow of the music and the interviews and and create your orchestra and composition of piece by that feeling and tone um, and, and, and your eye, 
or you can do it by the numbers. Transitions need to be five seconds, had three seconds, and, and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so that doesn't always work. And I, I think that wine is the same way. Absolutely, you can do it by the numbers. And in fact, they make systems now where, like breweries and cider houses, it's you push a button and you walk away, and out the end of the pipe comes, you know, high-end finished product. But um, I decided to take a different approach and really work on the sensory evaluation. Um, but that, that really led to a focus on getting the the quality uh, right in the vineyard first. Garbage in, garbage out. You gotta start with high-end grapes. So. I would say 90% 90 of, 90 of my effort goes into growing grapes. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get back to that in a second, but I'm curious, as you were getting started, was there anything memorable, memorable about your first vintage or, or anything about, the, about learning to make wine that was surprising to you? Uh, sure. I, so, uh, as a product of the 70s and 80s, I, I had my share of being exposed to uh, the I Love Lucy show and, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. But I'm sure many people will recognize and, and relate to one particular episode where they're stomping grapes. There's another chocolate factory one that kind of is, is relatable mm -hmm. where, you know, Lucy gets herself into a lot of trouble as usual. Um, but it kind of, you know, opens up your eyes into, okay, well... Uh, yes, here in America, there's lots of uh, machinery and, and tools and things to brute force, you know, attack things. And I think as you grow in, in, into um, uh, business, you know, a lot of those things start to make sense. But when you're getting started, too, and maybe even some portion and, of your strategy is still... Um, there's a reason why wine, you know, has been able to stand the test of time. Like we always talk about, you know, top... 20 songs or whatever and one measure is does it actually stand the test of time is it still popular throughout the ages and wine has done that right mm -hmm. so um while recipes and styles change um i'm reminded from being in the marketing world that you know uh everything comes around <laughs> mm -hmm. so right now it's interesting to see that there's a new segment of wine called natural wines um, it doesn't have a lot of regulation it, it, it's you're allowed to use uh, and it, i don't know who, it, it, whether that's the appropriate word being allowed to because people just do there's no regulation but you can use sul sulfites um, in, in the wine but the idea is really mainly not use chemical inputs um, a, a, as little as possible in the vineyard, but definitely in the winery, no, trying not to use any commercial additives. Mm -hmm. And so we've been making our wine that way since 2012. In fact, we stomped the grapes. All the reds are stomped. Uh, the uh, whites are whole cluster pressed, uh, and the uh, reds are fermented with uh, all the skins, all the stems. Uh, we do a, a classic barrel aging of minimum of two years, but it's often up to three years. Uh, and we use ambient temperatures uh, and the cycles of the seasons in order to age the wine versus, again, I push a button, it chills it down. <laughs> you know, already I, like we're, we're adding sparkling to our, our program and it's like, 
how can I do this <laughs> old world style? And it makes a lot of sense still because the power requirements, you know, for all of that refrigeration and cooling and things is a big hit to the bottom line as well. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's kind of fun in, the, in this day and age of um, uh, controlling your carbon footprint in returning to some of those off-grid systems that have been around for centuries uh, for cooling and heating and, but mainly, I think timing your production and your cycles with the seasons. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking at doing a bunch of my sparkling program actually in the winter because I need a cooling effect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you, you, you've, you've given pretty good thought here to your, your vineyard philosophy, winemaking philosophy, how they overlap as, as an estate winery, they have to of course complement each other. I'm curious if that was how that came about, if that was something you, you kind of naturally fell into or, or, or was it something that you developed along the way because you didn't like the way you were doing something? Yeah, I, I, I've always felt that I've, um, uh, whether it's a guardian angel or just lady luck, um, things have usually turned out pretty well for me, but it, I think more than anything it's just the uh, uh, sense of um, you know, okay, I'll try again. I, uh, you know, the glass is half full. I can find a silver, silver lining in, okay, I spilled a bunch of wine, but, <laughs> you know, we'll make more. <laughs> uh, you know, so um, it, you could say that I fell into it, but uh, in analyzing what you're doing and, and going back to that basic tenet of less is more, in approaching the market and, and uh, making the wine and doing the grapes, it all relates to that. So it, 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 it was easy to try to you know, navigate and find that path. Um, and even as it relates to the pandemic, one of the biggest things in the industry now is you know, many big producers are, are dependent on wholesale sales. And we're so small, um, while we've been trying to break you know, through that barrier, um, and that's challenging for small producers. We're thankful that we aren't dependent upon that right now in this in this in this challenging time. So uh, it really is interesting. Like the seeds of our uh, you know uh, grape selection in uh, being rooted with a Swedish co-op uh, you know vineyard uh, guy that. Uh, here we are still being dependent on our local community and they have come uh, you know, to, uh, uh, to support us with force. I, it amazes me how much wine some people are buying. <laughs> but it, it, it's, it's, from a marketing standpoint, you know, people are sharing memberships, whether it's Netflix or wine club memberships, and, and our membership, you know, allows them to bring guests and that kind of stuff, but just like Costco runs and stuff like that, oh, you're going, can you pick up this and that, you know, they're buying cases for them and all their friends, and, and their friends hadn't actually come to see us before, too, so our, our local customer base is growing out of this, which is really neat to see. Amazing. Given that you're you're oftentimes serving people wine that maybe they've never heard of or never had before, what's the what's the ultimate takeaway? What is the ultimate reaction you'd like to have someone trying your wine? Um, I pause because wine is so subjective, and I uh, I think I've discovered that uh, not just for wine, for many things, um, because of that subjectiveness. 
people like all different grades and styles of beverages and food. Um, there was a beer put out called Swill. And <laughs> people bought it. It was so popular, they made it again. <laughs> you know, kind of thing. Uh, and uh, so it, it's hard to qualify that question with, you know, a specific answer because people have such a broad range of what they like. So I'm, I'm happy to approach it with, I grow, you know, I think a broad enough product line of grapes that they can find something they like in ours. Um, but uh, from a business standpoint, and, and yeah, again, at the marketing standpoint, we're, I mean, you could consider the Willamette Valley in the Pacific Northwest Eden is it, mm -hmm. just one of the, those magic places uh, on, on earth that is, uh, it's just super easy to grow things and high quality things. So the choice is bountiful, you know, it really does come down to the experience. And so you ha really have to work hard on differentiating what mm -hmm. that experience is going to be. And, and so I think that the answer to that really is that we found different grapes that people you know can explore mm -hmm. and enjoy um, but uh, on the style side you know old world wines um, and winemaking styles over time I think through natural process but then through preference too um, and a, recogn a, a recognition of the effects of alcohol there's a happy balance and medium and you know so you hear the French classically talk about balance all the time mm -hmm. in, in, in these abstract ways that encompass you know the land the climate and the wine and the winemaker and all that kind of thing so finding the balance I think um, is great uh, it, because it's a more enjoyable experience I think all too often in, in the in many parts of, of industry now worldwide, it's a race to the most. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's not just quality, it's just the most. And it's disappointing to, to see, you know, the beer industry start to struggle because you think that, you know, that, that they um, would actually be um, growing with all of these microbreweries, you know, coming to market and, and that, but they're switching to a commodity kind of service where it's just this giant menu that lists some metrics about what you, there's no story. There's a brand name that doesn't even indicate, you know, other than IPAs or everything now. Uh, but that's, you know, going towards that idea that bigger and better, you know, or bigger is better or more is better. Um, and I, I can't remember if it was uh, Dennis Leary, you know, comment on coffee or what but it's just like I just want a cup of black coffee you know kind of thing <laughs> so wine I think is is it's pleasant to find uh, you know wines that are still made with that balance mm -hmm. and natural wines um, or our natural wines are, are made that way you know so for reds we we hit a, a target uh, ABV um, and for whites the same uh, even though tax law has changed where the market is pushing towards, oh, I can add more alcohol to it. So people perceive that they have a better value, mm -hmm. you know. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out, I think, with consumers. Because generationally, you know, people 
They don't get why there's light beer and regular beer when they're 20, right? <laughs> or 21. <laughs> but pretty soon you figure out why there's light beer. <laughs> so how did you come up with the name King's Raven and what's, what's the meaning behind, behind the name? Uh, well, our family surname is uh, Ingram, I-N-G-R-A-M, and supposedly uh, that is the name of an Anglo-Saxon war hero's raven, and this uh, hero's name was uh, Ing, just I-N-G. So my cousin had done some work on looking this up and um, drafted a logo, um, and uh, as we were getting started, we actually had just... Uh, approached the market to grow grapes and sell grapes to other wineries, but uh, we, we approached the market during another recession, the 2000 recession, and uh, so we decided to jump in and uh, we incorporated the winery by 2003. Uh, so help me get back on track here. I lost my train of thought. King, King's Raven, the name. Uh, the name, right. Uh, so. Uh, he presented this logo and a little brief history of what our family name was because as we were uh, contemplating making our own wine from the grapes, uh, the family, my partners, my parents and my sister and her husband and my wife at the time, uh, we, uh, they, well they primarily had wanted to uh, uh, copy what they see in the store, which is mostly a picture, a line drawing of the chateau or, or, or the vineyard and um, the name of the chateau or a family crest, family shield, that kind of thing. Even though, our, uh, as far as we know, our family has never been in wine. Um, we're, from, we're Scottish uh, uh, heritage and German heritage. Uh, so it didn't make a lot of sense. From a marketing perspective, I thought, oh, you know, the, the, the area here has a lot of history. Maybe a geographical name would be great. The road we're on right here is called New Era. And uh, so it would have been, you know, a neat parallel, but I got voted down and <laughs> we um, did choose to um, make a play on that meaning of our surname, at least. Uh, so in, a, in an effort to um, still have some type of connection to the old world, we ended up drafting the... Um, and it's a still our current label uh, is a playing card, and it's a, a, a hand painted um, playing card in the suit of our logo, which is a raven holding two bottles. And uh, uh, so it, it it was kind of a neat process, you know, for all of us to agree on this uh, and, and put it together, but. Um, there, you know, ravens uh, also have a very mystical uh, history, uh, and it's neat to watch them even, you know, as it relates to the vineyard out here. We have a family of falcons, and there's all kinds of crows out here, you know, a, a, a cousin to the raven. So, um, yeah, we, we uh, simply chose, you know, to go with that. So you, you got into, you got into planting about 20 years ago, you started making wine shortly thereafter. Tell me about the growth of King's Raven since you started and, and what, what has changed and, and, and where you're at today versus, versus where you started. Well, 20 years ago, uh, 
you know, everybody at that time thought the world was ending with the, <laughs> the computer problem of the year 2000. Oh, man, that was so long ago. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it was really, you know, uh, uh, we have nothing to lose. The world's going to end. Let's jump into, you know, grapes. And I uh, started volunteering with some other wineries and participating uh, with the Oregon Wine Growers Association. I actually um, volunteered and did the, the OWA website for two or three years in the early 2000s in their newsletter. Um, and uh, so I got you know, a, a very early backdoor uh, introduction to what was happening in the wine industry 20 years ago. But now it's completely different. Um, and there are a lot of lot of players coming to town, you know, um, and we are seeing that generational turnover mm -hmm. um, where a lot of the people that started in the 60s, 70s and the 80s are aging out and either selling or second and third generations are taking over. And that's interesting and neat to see. Um, but um, I think varietally, that's one of the most interesting things that is happening. Uh, I'm not totally sold on climate change. Uh, I, I, I do believe there are long-term cycles um, and droughts can be long uh, as well. It, it's interesting, we've you know, had our wettest June quite some time. <laughs> and I'm shivering here today in <laughs> July because <laughs> it's uh, not even 70 degrees. <laughs> but uh, the... Uh, you know, the, the change varietally, you know, to bring in a lot of outside of the region grapes to add to the product line, I think is one of the most sensitive areas for me. You know, there's a big emphasis on local, and uh, um, but for making wine, it, it, you know, it's interesting. You can have a winery that's kind of like basically a co-packer. They can take resources from all over. You know, and so on one hand, from a manufacturing standpoint, it totally makes sense. But um, I think that, you know, some of the efforts that are, that are taking place on augmenting and changing and proposing changing wine labeling um, updates and, and change are going to be good for the industry because I feel like the, the consumer is left to believe that a lot of these wines are being made right here and grown and made right here in the Willamette Valley and, and it's just simply not true. I, I think many wineries are being um, uh, upfront with it now uh, and they always have been but still it's it's kind of like you know the ingredients on a label people aren't paying attention they show up at a winery they expect that that's where the grapes came from mm -hmm. so there's some education I think that you know would really help on the consumer side there um, because it, the, the winery appellation system and the regional system of defining where grapes are from is so paramount you know um, it you know so it, it's a tough subject for me what about for you Personally, I think growth of growth of you and, and your and your brand. How is it? How have you evolved? It, it's been it, our evolution has been fun and exciting. Uh, so, uh, traveling the world, uh, doing video production, 
and coming back to the vineyard, uh, and tending the grapes, and, and, and making it as, you know, kind of a hobby farm um, was definitely a challenge. Uh, but I've been on site working here full time now. This is my third season. Uh, and so the evolution <laughs> has gone from, you know, the laundry list of someday we should do these things, <laughs> like including having a sign at the end of the driveway. And it took until, you know, last year to get <laughs> a sign at the end of the driveway because we're all spread so thin. And, and uh, so that's neat. But um, we've all, all also been a part of the, uh, the migration that's happened here in, in Oregon, that many, many people are coming to Oregon. And, and uh, you know, it's um, good, bad, or indifferent, um, you know, I think the world will continue to evolve and change. So, uh, you know, on one hand, it's great. On another hand, it, it you know, it's challenging. Um, and so, it, it's interesting to see some of those things pop out. But the bottom line is, I think people really do want to be connected to where their food sources come from. Mm -hmm. And this is such a great way to get out and just dip your toe in it, in it because you know, many farms you can't have access to. Uh, for you know, lots of very good valid, valid reasons, and and wineries can be the same way. There's there's hazards here, so uh, I, I I like the agritourism part of it, and and um, I I know where where I'm going with this is uh, from the music industry. I, I read one time uh, they say that it, it it takes 15 years to become an overnight success and, and you know become a pop star. You know you, you gotta do your time in the bars and the county fairs and all that kind of stuff. And for wine, it, it seems like it's maybe 15 or 20 years too. You know, it's not like the traditional business model. If you're not making money by year three, <laughs> you should cut the cord and get out. For wine, you, you've really gotta look, I think, at that 15, 20 year mark to see okay, is this worthwhile to do? Mm -hmm. We're making some money, it's, it, we enjoy doing it. And uh, so that's been, I guess, the most rewarding thing. After putting that 15 year commitment into it, our customer base really showed up in force and said, hey, yeah, keep making wine. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, we, were, we were poised for this to be our best year ever. Um, and so, uh, we're, we're happy that we're still being, you know, there's a lot of su tremendous support out there. So I, th I think that uh, there's lots of uh, great things to come. And I tell people all the time, even though we're winning awards and, and people are buying the wine, we're uh, selling out of our wine and we're, we're, we're uh, very small, but sell primarily direct to consumer is that I feel like, you know, my best vintage still isn't there. I'm, I'm going to keep improving and, and going for making the best one I can. And I know that that evolution will happen because, uh, you, you know, through experience um, and maybe style changes, experimentation, innovation, basically, basically you, if you're not innovating, you, you're, you're going to become stale and outdated and, you know, so you gotta, you gotta stay relevant. So you mentioned, uh, mentioned the pandemic earlier and mentioned that, that, that you had hopes for this being your, your best year and obviously been probably put on pause a little bit, but tell me about the effects of the pandemic on the business and, and maybe on your outlook for the future. 
Yeah, the pandemic is an interesting one. Uh, it'd be real easy to take a political <laughs> path to talking about this. Uh, but there's no doubt that uh, just like droughts, these kinds of events happen, uh, you know, historically. So on one hand, it's, it's easy to, you know, say, all right, we're doing the right thing. On the other hand, you know, are we, you know, killing Johnny to save Jill? And uh, so those are tough questions. Nobody wants, you know, to make, have to make those decisions. Uh, but uh, in terms of the winery business, um, it, uh, I don't think that uh, we would be doing as well, and this is, this is really gonna be the tough ones because social media is such a double-edged sword. While it's giving us a platform to be our own advertisers and, and really um, piggyback on that word of mouth advertising, uh, it, uh, it also is detrimental in many ways. Um, and so it, it's, like, it's like that, you know, that there is no silver bullet, but um, here we are, you know, in this position where we're open to limited capacity, we're in phase one of, of the pandemic where we're at, and um, that means we can have some limited interaction and business but uh, if we didn't have social media right now, we would be lost. Nobody would be hearing about us. Uh, and uh, because the, uh, the, the other systems, print and radio and TV are all struggling it, um, it, you know, with their systems too. And so it's gonna be interesting to see what comes next out of this. Cause I think this also is gonna have an impact on social media. Um, and how, you know, there's going to be some outcomes for that, and hopefully it allows uh, marketers like us to still have an avenue to, you know, people. It's hard to say, you know, what's going to happen, uh, but I think that the main thing is just like the weather and, uh, um, you know, the changing styles or preferences in the marketplace, we just have to keep dusting ourselves off and you know, say, all right, well, it, in the finish line, you know, six feet under for me. So <laughs> it's not tomorrow, it's not next week. It's, it's, you know, when I get to that point. And I think that's the hard part for a lot of people is they think, oh, if I just get to this milestone, I, I'm done, I can relax. But life isn't that way. Farming isn't that way. Wine isn't that way. And um, to that end, uh, we, Besides being in, in a Oregon Pioneer family's legacy, um, uh, we've started a port program. And one of the reasons I started the port program is because it really does appeal to me that consider true ports that are managed for decades and hundreds of years. It takes generations of either family members or the winery to manage, and in our case right now, we're only producing a single barrel of port a year, but where our initial release is going to be at 10 years old um, and I make a barrel or two every year and, and eventually we'll grow that program but it um, is definitely an inspiring thought to think that you know uh, uh, 
that 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 program will you know kind of like a time capsule go through you know this this whole experience that the rest of us are are, are, are going through mm -hmm. and like a piece of music we'll you know crack a bottle and say remember 2020 <laughs> i'll drink to that <laughs> Yeah, drink to being in the rearview mirror sounds pretty nice. So, as you look ahead for your own, you've talked a little bit about kind of uncertainty. But what do you hope to achieve here? What do you what do you hope for the next say decade here at King's Raven? What do you want to do? Is there a new varietal you want to try? A new project? A certain size you want to be? Sure. I there there are a couple of interesting things that we're approaching right now. Um, the port program is one of them. But that's been in process for a while. But I've been watching the um, again the the, the varietal mix um, for quite some time. And uh, to be successful, you know, one of the first tips of successful people tell you is do something that you like. <laughs> You've already got a leg up. So picking a varietal that you want to work with is half something you like and then half is it going to be marketable or can I even grow it that kind of thing and so it's really interesting and appealing to me to see where we're at with the weather and um, the the market penetration for Sauve Blanc mm. um, there are there are a few producers doing it here in the valley and uh, so we planted uh, an acre uh, last year and it's going to be fun to see mm -hmm. where that fits because again you have to look so far out into the future and for the way we farm the grapes it takes five years to get, just get the first crop because we do the single high wire trellis it takes five four or five years to get a good trunk up at that height and but the older you get you know five years seems like a year <laughs> <laughs> Each of those years seem like seasons, you know? <laughs> so it just goes by really fast, but you get it started, and once that rhythm is started, there's, you know, a new a, a new crop each year. Mm -hmm. So hopefully that'll be a good bet, and, and uh, we'll see what happens uh, uh, with Sauve Blanc. But I think that uh, one of the, you know, under-told stories and how things will change for wine is absolutely going to be hybrids and unusual varietals because I uh, like in the case of the the uh, current you know European varietals we work with today like antibiotics for human beings and animals and things like that they become ineffective from overuse <laughs> um, and so everything else evolves but the grape is not evolving because we're taking clones we're this is the exact DNA for you know decades, and it hasn't had a chance to evolve its DNA to you know combat whatever pests that it has to deal with. So hybrids are really going to be the answer when fungicides no longer work. In 2011, or no, excuse me, 2015 and 16, those two really hot years, mm -hmm. a whole group of organic fungicides became ineffective and the whole valley was affected um, and now there's another group that you know they're saying only use once a year and uh, I don't know if it's at Linfield or OSU or where but there's a study being commissioned to study you know some of these fungicides and 
and why they're not being effective, but we know that it's just overuse and the bugs will evolve. So mm -hmm. new grapes have to come to market. So it's going to be interesting to see how the market reacts to that because the, the while uh, small guys like us, you know, are willing to take a risk, you know, on um, bringing these new uh, or old grapes to market, the big guys, it's just, I have a cash cow and I, you know, I need Pinot Noir, I need Cab, I need Chardonnay, you know. So what happens when it becomes too economic, you know, it becomes too expensive to grow those grapes because there's nothing that will work, you know, to spray them? Mm -hmm. That's a big question. Mm -hmm. You know, and I'm sure technology will be a part of that. There's a guy that has invented a uh, ozone water sprayer, you know, so it's no chemical. And ozone is being used in many different UV light. There's all of these different things that are augmenting the use of chemical. Um, but, I, you know, it really hasn't been that long since the 1940s. We got to the 50s and it was chemical you know, look how we can save the farmer time and increase quality and, and, and all this, you know. So it, 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 um, it's going to be interesting to watch all that change. And you've touched on it a little bit, but what, what will the Oregon wine industry look like in the future? What does what the next five, ten years look like for the industry as a whole? Yeah, tough question. I. I think there's going to be a rise and fall to agritourism in some ways. Uh, that challenge between the rural community and the um, and the metropolitan community um, has some big challenges uh, in, in many different ways. But the biggest one being the traffic and the urban spread into farmland. Mm -hmm. Oregon has some of the toughest land use laws and that's one of the reasons it's driving land prices higher but that also becomes detrimental to farming now the farmland is too expensive to buy and farm so you know what's going to happen to the farmland in the next 20 years is going to be interesting as well as generationally uh, you know, it, in some ways it's easier than ever to farm with, you know, today's tractors and equipment and stuff like that, you know. Um, but still, I, while people, I think, enjoy, you know, the organic stuff and going to the pumpkin patch and, and, and whatnot, there still seems to be this idea that, uh, uh, you know, being, I guess, a, uh, an outdoor laborer, or working in the fields is just it's I, I'm search trying to search for the right words but it, it's it's not a desirable mm -hmm. position to have mm -hmm. thankfully you know there's some things happening that are I think um, through the minimum wage you know it, it hurt a little bit in the beginning but raising up the minimum wage is putting a little bit more emphasis on you know um, Everybody, you know, deserves to, you know, earn a fair wage. Uh, but uh, just like paying our teachers uh, a more than fair wage to, you know, be the caretakers really and the shepherds of the next generation, 
don't we want that same emphasis on the people who take care of our food and grow our food? <laughs> so it, it, you know, so there are some things that are happening that are really interesting on that side, and and I'm hopeful that because of that, more young people will be interested. But I. Uh, I was fortunate enough to grow up in a community that um, uh, did was focused on agricultural um, activity, but you know, for youth, the the 4-H groups and FFA and, and those kinds of things really showed, I think, the youth who can't necessarily participate in all of the activities um, that you know it, it's important that we do. Mm -hmm. um, put a big emphasis on how we grow our food and participating with it. Uh, so uh, I'm hopeful that, you know, there's some, some major changes on the labor side. Uh, I think uh, on the market side, the tourism side is going to change uh, because there's going to be become a saturation point and we just haven't gotten there. You know, like Sonoma County still has more wineries than all of Oregon. <laughs> it's that kind of thing, you know, we, I don't know that we've reached saturation yet. Um, and then there'll be a pullback uh, and that that's likely probably to happen in this next 15 to 20 years, reach that saturation point. But the, the, the saving grace is there's only so many spots on planet Earth that are ideal for growing the best quality grapes and this is one of them. So. I, th I think that the future is still bright. If someone were to ask you uh, for your advice on joining the Oregon wine industry, what would your words of wisdom to them be? <laughs> uh, I, I'm thinking of a joke that's commonly told, you know, start with $2 million, that way you have a million dollars left over. Uh, but uh, my advice would be start small. Uh, my advice would be don't make more than you can sell. <laughs> my advice would be um, it's okay to be small and you know learn those hard knocks on a small scale versus a, a large scale and then just giving it all back to the bank because that's where things are at now. You, you, you know they're Yes, there are a, you know quite a few wineries, and some of them will transition to the next family, you know, member in the in, in, or that next generation, and then their family. But even those times sometimes don't work out. Those kids don't want to work the farm. So, uh, I I would I would say you know my other piece of advice would be get involved in the community. Just volunteer your time and be a part of the community and you'd be surprised how much you can learn from that you know uh, as well as give t you know it's that if you give a little you get a little mm -hmm. so but otherwise uh, pull up your pants because it's hard work you know <laughs> and it takes a lot of commitment so be prepared All right, last last question for you, and it's a little philosophical one for you. So just so you're prepared. Okay. What is what is wine's role in society? Oh, interesting. I uh, I would call it a moderator. 
Hi. Wine is a, is a very interesting beverage. Um, and in my study of the marketplace in this 20 years of, of working in wine, uh, historically we've been watching from the 80s wine on a, a global sales trend of up and up and up and up and just in the last couple of years it started to flatline while we've been watching beer go down and down and down and and so now the beer guys are making hard seltzers and hard seltzers with no sugar are, are all the rage and this and that and at the end of the day wine is still that balance of um, being a little bit of a moderator for life that you know the, the 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 classic packaging and everything is perfect for the husband and wife and family you know setting it, it a bottle you know holds depending on how big your glass is two to four glasses <laughs> you know so perfect for a couple um, to have a bottle of wine with a meal kind of thing and you know so I you finish that and you've had enough beer You've never had enough. You keep drinking it. <laughs> Hard alcohol, so the seltzers included. For some reason, it's a little bit tricky. You think you haven't had enough because it's so fruity or you know easy drinking that you drink you overdrink too much. And so on both spectrums, you've lost the balance of even the experience. Where wine, it just seems to be a, you know a conversation, a great conversation starter. Um, there's a lot of romance and mystery that, that are wrapped up into it. So I think that uh, it's a moderator. Yeah. yeah. Like that. For life <laughs> and relationships. <laughs> all right, that's all the questions that I have for you. Is there anything I didn't ask today that, we, that I should have? Anything we didn't cover today that we should have covered? Um, I don't think so. You know, uh, we could get into you know the the deep parts of all the little marketing you know tidbits of why natural wine this and that. But really, I, I'm hopeful that this will be like you said used in a piece you know that helps tell the story of of why you know we're we're happy to be a part of this story uh, in Oregon. And if you want to know more, come talk to us. We're here. That is a great way to end this interview. I appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, Absolutely. for your hospitality, and, and, uh, and sharing your stories. And we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Fantastic. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.